well, here we go. We're a couple of weeks behind. We should have been into our new unit, but we're not. This will be the last lesson in Colossians. Next week, we'll look at Philemon real quick. It's only one chapter. And then we'll start Ezekiel um, after that. So we're a couple of weeks out. Um, for that, we're trying to catch up and the like. Well, this morning, I'm going to take the meddling. I'm not just going to teach. I'm going to meddle. So you'll probably be annoyed with me by the end, but that's okay. <laughs> we are looking at the uh, last lesson of Colossians. So this is session six. The gospel and relationships. Believers live and relate differently as a result of the gospel. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, so you can go ahead and find that there. If you're familiar with Colossians at all, or if you've already looked it up and have it in front of you and pre-read the verses, um, we're dealing with relationships. Marriage and family, master-slave or boss and worker, um, children and parents, uh, and all of that goes with those. Oftentimes, this will be used in a wedding uh, as a passage to challenge the newlyweds with and the like. When we talk about family, we all have a role. When I say, what's your role in your family, where does your thinking go to? Things that you're doing. The things that you do, okay. Um, like mother, father, son, daughter. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But what, what is when you think about your particular role, what is, where does your thinking go? My grandkids. Your grandkids. Responsibilities. Responsibilities. Caretaker. Caretaker. Oh. When the world thinks of their role in families. And now think of all the stupid sitcoms and all the dumb TV shows that you see the ads for. Where does the world go when, it, when you talk about the roles in a family? There are, no there are no roles. Okay. Huh? The children rule. Dad's ridicule. It's all about yourself. It's all about yourself. What I get out of it. Yeah, what I get out of the marriage or the family, okay? It's funny, um, most of us in here are old enough to remember back uh, to TV shows where it was about duties to the family. And then after that was a time period where it was about... Um, your rights, uh, you know, what I, what I get out of it as we came through the, I guess, the mid-70s through the 80s. It was my rights. It was uh, the whole idea of the 50-50 marriage became real popular. I give 50%, you give 50%, and, the mar and our family, our marriage will have 100%. Colossians chapter... Chapter 3, 
18 through 20. Let's go ahead and start with that as we look at this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Ever hear those verses? Mm -hmm. Maybe a few times? I've heard them a lot. And the fact of the matter is, is that they're often taken out of context. Uh, they're used mainly to flog husbands. Um, but they're used by a lot of husbands, at least back in the day, to put wives in their place. And I'm here to say that neither one of those is right. Uh, quite simply, we have to look at the context that Paul writes this in. What is the context for the book of Colossians? We've been going through it. What is he dealing with? Huh? In this, he's dealing in relationships, but the whole book of Colossians. There were problems in the church. There were problems in the church. What were the problems? Say again? Arguments and dissensions. There were arguments and dissensions about what? I know, I'm making it. This is all before Christmas. What God was directing them to do, they wanted to do what they wanted to do. Okay, they were wanting to do what they were wanting to do. Specifically, there's key words up there. What was it that he was dealing with? Well, okay, they weren't they weren't accepting forgiveness as forgiveness. That's true. Loving each other. Say Loving each other. No, not so much loving with each other. Same, same thing. Same thing. He was dealing with false teachers. Remember the Gnostics? They were causing all sorts of problems. Remember the right before this passage, right before we come to this wives submit to your husbands stuff. Paul was telling them, let nobody count you out because you don't follow a certain code or because you don't follow a certain person or because you haven't done X, Y, or Z or you don't know this knowledge because it was all this whole thing that you needed salvation plus all this other stuff, right? That's what, that's what we've been dealing with with Colossians. He deals with the work in Christ. He deals with Paul's ministry that he's teaching salvation, what Jesus preached. Then dealing with the whole false teacher thing. So here we go. This is part of the Christian life of how we're supposed to live. Don't let anybody say you're not a Christian because you don't follow certain things. These are the things that we're supposed to follow he's talking about. Here's our context. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17. As we come to these verses, the verse right before this, look at it with me. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's our context. He's decried all the false teachers that have come to Colossae. They all say, add this, do that. And you'll be a good Christian. He says, that's not true. All you need is salvation. 
All you need is Jesus. And whatever you do, whether you follow a certain code, that's okay. But that's not what saves you. If you do it, then do it in the name of the Lord. So this is our context. This is, what we're, this is where we have to look at this in terms of that. Now the question is, is why? Why does Paul take up this whole thing? If he's dealing with false teachers and false teaching, why does he turn to the most basic relationships and building blocks of a society? Because they probably weren't doing that. Okay, they probably weren't doing that. That's true. Because he's taking them back to the basics? Because <laughs> he's what? Taking them back to the basics? Taking them back to the basics. Remember with me, if you will, all the way back, when man sinned the first time. Genesis chapter 3. Verses 8 through 13. Somebody go ahead and read that. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you, move over, Andrew. <laughs> who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right. Now, I know we've gone all the way back, but we have to go all the way back. We have our context, but we have to understand why Paul is making this assertion here, why it's so important. At the moment of sin entered the world through Adam, our relationships all broke. Our relationship with God was broken. Adam's like hiding from God. Why are you hiding? Well, because I'm naked. I, I'm afraid of you. That wasn't that, there was none of that. It says that when Adam, in the cool of the day, would meet with God, they would walk in the garden together, side by side as friends, and they would talk and they would have a relationship. Now the relationship has changed. God went from being friend to being God. Well, God. Okay. Now, the, judge. You judge authority. He had yeah. He had to become the authority figure. They couldn't be friends anymore. The relationship with God, broken. How was it fixed? Christ. Christ dying on the cross. The relationship is fixed through his blood, his payment. Judgment was decreed in Genesis chapter 3. And it was paid off at the cross when he died. So now that relationship can be restored. It's a work in progress. We are not back to being completely friendly with God because we still sin. But we can fix it. And then we sin, and then we have to fix it. There'll be a time when that won't be the case. Now, the woman. 
was a perfect relationship. I know we cannot imagine it. We don't know what it even looked like. But they lived life in harmony together. In communion, in whatever blissful state existed. And when... Did that just... Yeah, I okay. touch it though. Okay. Um, it's just dying. The blissful state they lived in was broken. Now it's an adversarial relationship between the man and the woman. How did that relationship get fixed? The Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, yeah, he died. But did that fix it? Not, no, not really. Gives us opportunity. Right, it gave us the opportunity. And that's what Paul's talking about here. How to live the repaired relationship life. The whole point of the gospel, as far as the Colossians were being told by the false teachers, was the accumulation of knowledge and power and followers and all the me stuff. Just like most of the TV evangelists, how much can I rake in over the people? How much, how many followers can I have? The whole cult following stuff. That's what was going on. They saw Christianity as a way to gain for themselves. Oh, you're not really a Christian if you don't follow me. If you don't, if you're not one of mine, then you're going to not be a Christian. They, I mean, these, these guys, this is what they were doing. They were going from town to town, village to village, city to city, gathering followers of themselves. Paul, says, Paul makes it clear. It's all about Jesus. That's why verse 17 in chapter 3 is, So whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Paul, right? <laughs> no. Paul doesn't care who, you, who you're following. You follow Christ, we do it in the name of Christ. That's why this whole argument that, well, I just can't do church. There's so many fake people there. So are you following people or are you following Christ? He's not fake. He's as real as they get. People will fail you. I will fail you. I'm only human. I'm not God. I'm not perfect. People put pastors on a pedestal because they're following them. We shouldn't be following individuals. And that's what Paul's pointing out here. And so he's trying to tell us that these relationships have been restored. So let's take a look at that. Let's see. All right, so the Christian life. This is part five of the our outline. Uh, it's the Christian life. He goes to families because the problem are people in the world. In the most basic building block of a society is its families. That's one of the reasons why uh, humanists are attacking the family and they're trying to redefine it and trying to change what it means to be a family, even to the point now that they're trying to redefine what it means to be human. Um, this is all part of why we've got to make some changes to our doctrinal statement and stuff. We need to add some uh, statements that we, you know, 20 years ago, nobody worried about we only knew there were two genders, men and women. Now we've actually got to argue that it, there are only two genders uh, from it. So we've got to actually create a doctrine about gender. Can you imagine? 
There's nothing in the uh, catechisms or any of those old... Nobody ever questioned that. They're men, they're women. What else, what else do you need to know? But now we've got like 27 different varieties. <laughs> but families are the building block of a society. And Paul is building a society. The church. It's a society. It's a way of people interacting with people in each other and it starts with the family now we have to look at the cultural context of the time in the ancient world when you said family what did it include well all the generations that like grandparents parents children yeah they lived multi-generational in their homes there was no nuclear family that's a, really, that's something that's only come about probably since like the 70s or so. Most families lived uh, multi-generation, if not in the same house, in town. You didn't move. You didn't go anywhere. Everybody, I mean, most of the time, you took up whatever job your dad had for the most part. I mean, that sort of changed in the 60s because they had money and people wanted better for their kids. And so they would try to get them into college so they could get better jobs. But mostly, you, you, whatever trade or job or business your father had, or your grandfather probably still around, you were expected to go into the family business, right? But yeah, multi-generational. Who remembers the Waltons? How weird was that by today's society? So what else was considered part of the family? Yeah, servants and slaves. Mm -hmm. They were part of the household. They had position in the family. So you have the children, the parents, and the slaves, the household, whatever they were, bondsmen, and all that. They, so Paul is addressing all of them because they're all part of the household, the family, which this is where the beginnings for the church take place. So in our families, we have a responsibility to Jesus. When we talk about Jesus and we talk about what we are to do for him that he's called us to, we don't talk about our rights, do we? Have you ever met somebody who's like, Jesus owes me, man. I did this for him. I did that. He owes me. He needs to get me out of this or get me this, that, or that. Anybody, have you ever run into somebody who actually talks like about that? No, neither have I. Nobody shows up to Jesus with a list of demands, do they? You owe me because. Why? I've been a good person. Well, now that's true. Huh? We're unworthy. The Lord. Well, yeah, says, like think we think that way, but nobody shows up making demands. No, nobody shows up making demands. We have a thought, and and that's part of our nature. That you know, well, I've done this for God. He, he really should let me win the lottery. <laughs> uh, but we know how ridiculous it sounds. Nobody really voices that. We think it, but we have a responsibility to Him. Now, He has a responsibility to us. Because he's made promises, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. But we don't ever claim on them. 
But we come to our relationships with our spouses and stuff, and we read this, wives submit to your husbands. Now, it's interesting. Who is he addressing in the sentence? Go back to grammar school. What's the, what's the uh, subject? Wives. Is he talking to us men? Is he talking to husbands? No, he's talking to wives. Wives, he says, I'm talking to you. Submit to your husbands. Now, somewhere along the way, we read this, and husbands said, I need to make my wife submit, because that's what it says. No, it doesn't, does it? If we look at this, it is very clear that the wife is to make the choice to submit to the husband. As in verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Who's he talking to? Husbands. Husbands. Not wives making the, wives, making the husbands love them. It's, again, a choice that they're expected to make. Children, obey your parents. Well, we, we know how children work. Um, they're supposed to obey. Now, you know, as children go, they say need, we are to correct them. But it doesn't tell us we have to correct our wives or husbands, does it? No. Children need correction until they be, so that they grow up to become adequate adults. And, and further... They're, they're still children when they're 50. Yes, they're, well, they're, you're, you're always children. I swear my mother only sees me as like a five-year-old. <laughs> I'm like, I'm 50, mom. But even when they're 50 and there are kids, they still have a responsibility oh, sure. to obey their parents, you know? Then there's the fathers don't provoke your children. This is an interesting one. The entire concept of that that Paul is talking about is not to frustrate them. Um, to recognize where their bent is. That's the word there. Children have a bent. Some are intellectual and will probably go to college and likely do something intellectual. Others, and they're probably children that aren't into sports. And then you have the children that are heavily into sports and all that, but they're not very intellectual. Um, and you've got all kind of varieties and stuff. The idea here is, is that we need to know our children and where their interest lies and not frustrating them. You ever see the little kid when they're in Little League? There's always that kid who's standing out there in the field with the glove and has no desire to be there, wandering around looking at the flowers or the birds or whatever. They're not interested in the sport. And then you've got that parent on the sideline who's yelling at them, look, pay attention, blah, blah, and try getting them extra lessons and all that because he's going to be a star. And all you're doing is annoying the child, aren't you? That child doesn't care, doesn't, isn't interested, and probably isn't very good at the sport either, right? Recognizing the bent, not to frustrate the children. This is what Paul is talking about. We have a different relationship. Because of Jesus, we do not have rights in the name of Christ. We have responsibilities to him to do what he has called us to do, and that is to restore the relationships that were broke way back in Genesis chapter 3. 
That's what he's calling us. That's the whole point of this. It isn't giving husbands the right to draw out whatever they want from their wives. And it isn't giving the wives the right to browbeat their husbands into whatever submissive thing that they want. And it doesn't give the children the right to run the household. That's not what's going on here. Paul is calling us to ourselves to submit to the authority that Christ has given. We don't have rights. We have responsibilities. Wives are responsible to submit to their husbands. And husbands are responsible to loving their wives. Our modern world throws these very concepts and these verses out. Many churches teach that this was a cultural idea and can be ignored today. Uh, that Paul was outdated. And that's not true. See, it's not about one group or the other group getting one up on it. It goes all the way back to the system that God laid down in Genesis and was broken in Genesis 3. And he's calling us back to it. It's not that, well, I submit because my husband loves me. I submit because Christ told me to. I love my wife regardless of whether she deserves it or I find her loving or anything. I love her because I've been told by Christ that's what I'm supposed to do. Just like I'm supposed to not lie. I'm supposed to not steal. All that. This is what I'm supposed to do. You're supposed to love. I mean, you can put these as other commandments, essentially. The relationship has been restored. I can now, through the power of Christ, love my wife. No matter what she does. We see this in the Old Testament. Who remembers the story? Prophet commanded to marry Gomer. 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 Yeah. You remember that story? Mm -hmm. She's a prostitute. He has children with her. He marries her. She runs away more than once. And he goes and gets her again. That's the example in the Old Testament of how God treated Israel. Well, guess what? That's how God's treated us. And we're not Israel, but he's done the same thing. He's chased us down, and now he says, guess what? That's what you need to be doing to your spouse. That's how you're supposed to live life. Submitting, even though he's detestable. Submitting because God asked you to. Loving, not because she deserves love, but because he said to love her. He, you married her. She's yours. This is the way the relationship works. You do your part 100% regardless of what the other person does, because you're not doing it for them. Love is meeting the needs of others regardless of the cost to self. Right? Isn't that what Jesus did? What did it cost him to love us? Everything. I mean, we can't even begin to comprehend what it meant to become human. We're human. We know what it means to be human. But to give up everything that you've had for eternity, the glory, the power, the all-knowing, all-powerful, and everybody loving you, and coming to earth as a, as a person, and then putting up with having the very creatures you create despise you, spit on you, beat you, whip you and kill you is beyond my comprehension. 
I cannot fathom being nailed to a cross and knowing that with a mere stopping of a thought, the entire atomic structure of that thing would fall apart and disappear. I can't imagine having that kind of power. And not doing it. To suffer the indecency, the indignity, the pain, knowing that all I gotta do is stop thinking and it's all over. Now that's giving up everything. And all he's called us to do is love our wives or submit to our husbands. And we find that our world finds that detestable. Why would I submit to a man? How can I love her? She's so unloving. Have you seen her in her bathing suit? Right? Right? Well, that's a hey, come on. You guys, I'm amazed at the number of couples in their 60s that are getting divorced, and he's running off for some 30-year-old. Why? Well, because I'm tired of her. We've been married 40-odd years, and I'm tired of her. Wow. <laughs> How does that work? But that's what's happening. Our society has said that that's okay. And we've accepted it. It's the destruction of the basic family unit in favor of the humanist, which says, you know what? Do it until you don't feel like doing it anymore. Quit anytime you want. Give it up. Whatever is good for you. See, it all comes back to focusing on you, the self, which is everything that Paul has been teaching against. It isn't about you. It's about everybody else. The whole love one another. Don't love you. Love one another. And so you submit to your husband. You love your wife. You submit to your parents. Not because it's good for you, but because you've been told to do it because that's the way we're supposed to be. Comment, question. I told you I'm going to meddle today. All right, Colossians chapter 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as far as the Lord, and then not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you have it, mark it. You're going to come back and talk some more about it. Um, but in our work, so we've expanded now. So in our homes and our families, this is how we act. In our work, in our business dealings, Paul challenged slaves to do what they were called upon to do in a way so as to bring honor to Christ. So who are you working for? Not your employer. Yeah. See, 
we've got this whole thing that work is evil or work isn't good. And we try to get away with as little as we possibly can. And still get paid and not get fired, right? Again, here's, here we go. Paul is turning the tables on everything. In a culture that men ruled and wives had very little authority, he told wives to submit, which would not have been popular in, in, in the culture then, Roman times. And he told husbands to love, which would not have been popular because I'm the boss, I'm in charge, it's my household. Um, and during Roman times, you realize that children did not get a dime if dad didn't um, adopt them. He could have as many children as he wanted, in wedlock, out of wedlock, it didn't matter. Whatever child he adopted now had the right to the family name and the fortunes and all that. Otherwise, they didn't matter. So he could wait until they were grown up and see what they turned out to be like. Parentage of birth meant nothing. You could adopt anybody. Ever see Ben-Hur? That's what happened to him, right? He got adopted by the Roman uh, admiral and had rights to all the family fortune and the name and everything else. Because that's how it worked. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. These are your children. You take care of them. And you children, you need to be respectful to your parents, obeying them. So now he comes to these guys. Slaves, what rights did slaves have? <laughs> None. They were property. We complain about slavery today because we keep going back and looking to the Confederate era and the way people... I'll tell you what. It was nasty in some of those plantations. I don't know that it was ever as bad as it was in the ancient Roman world. Uh, I mean, they might kill a slave here, but there they would impale them for days hanging on... Uh, a thing they'd crucify them. I don't know of any slaves in America that were where that was done to them, but that's what they did to them back then. A runaway slave, which is what we're going to talk about next week in Philemon, a slave who ran away uh, that was a death sentence. You were done, you were toast. If you ever were caught, slaves had no rights. And you know what's interesting? What does Paul say about slaves? He doesn't say slavery is evil, does he? If there was ever a point in Scripture where he could have corrected the entire concept of slavery, it was right here. And he doesn't. Which is interesting. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, there are chapters on it in Leviticus, the law. God had much to say about how masters were supposed to treat slaves. He never said, don't have slaves. He says, you treat them appropriately. They're people. They're my people. I'm the one that's overseeing them. You just get the chance to have them work for you. Paul challenges slaves to work heartily. Not for his master, but for the sake of Christ. 
Now, it's interesting. We don't have slaves today, do we? Right. So you own your house. How many of you own your house? Now, how many of you have a mortgage? Put your hand down. You don't own your house. The bank does. You're a slave to them. You're working for them. They gave you money and said, okay, here's your house, but now you owe, you're working for me. Because most of your paycheck's gone for that. Your car, whatever stuff you got on credit. Some of you owe doctors a lot of money, right? That's the way it works. We do work for other people. We just don't call it slavery today. But really it is. Back in the day, just 100 years ago, you wouldn't have gone to the bank for that loan. Where would you have gone? family, the, the company you work for, all the immigrants that came over, we'll hire you, we'll get you a house and all that, and then you go to the company store to buy your groceries, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. Who did you work for? The company. The company. They own you lock, stock, and barrel. They're, you know, they drag you off to a coal mine or wherever it was, in the middle of nowhere, and everything for 100 miles in any direction is owned by the company. The housing, the roads, all of that. You had little or no rights. You worked for them. It, didn't, it wasn't slavery. You agreed to it. Same thing today. We have contracts. Some of us are locked into contracts. We can't get out. Some of us are just ad hoc employees and we can change. But the reality is, is we work for somebody else. Masters are called to treat their slaves fairly, knowing that God would hold them accountable. Don't turn them loose. You don't have to free them, but you have to treat them appropriately. That's what God demands. See, our society's forgetting this now. We're trying to rewrite history. We're trying to change it. Apparently, God was okay with slavery. Go ahead. Wasn't most of the ancient slavery based on financial reasons? They would sell themselves. So it was more of an indentured, indentured, whatever the word is. That was a possibility. You could sell yourself, usually because you owe taxes. You would sell yourself to pay your tax bill for so many years or whatnot. Um, the problem is, is that the only people that could afford land were senators and people like that because they didn't have to pay taxes. So the local family farm had to pay a heavy tax because they were the Romans believed that they were the only trustworthy people to pay taxes, so they didn't tax the merchants because they're unreliable. And so because you were tied to the land, they would tax you, and when you couldn't afford it, then usually a senator, one of the Roman senators would come along and offer you a sum of money for your property and you could work for him and all that. That was one kind of slave. Those were bondsmen and you could remain in the service if you wanted to. Under Jewish law, if you wanted to remain in service, you could. And that's where the earring came from. They would take you to the doorpost, the lintel of the house, and they would take an awl and put it through your ear and they would put a, a, a ring, a gold ring in your ear you sold yourself into permanent bondsman as a bondsman. Um, Eliezer, Abraham's servant that he sent to acquire a wife for Isaac way back, he was that sort of servant. They, they have more than one word. 
But there were also servants or slaves who were acquired through war. They'd come in, roll into your town, and conquer you. And you became slaves. You didn't have any choice. That was also acceptable. Many of them would be taken, and it would be a lifetime of service. Now, their children had a chance to become free at some point, but they would not. They were, they were slaves. So there were different kinds of slaves. Those that wanted to be slaves for certain reasons, tax or otherwise, and there were those that were captured. I mean, all the Germanic tribes uh, of Germany and um, Austria and all that. When Rome went and conquered those people, they brought them back in large quantities of slaves and sold them. Uh, those slaves were often not wanting to be slaves and caused a lot of problems and were usually high, were bought to go to mines, salt mines, iron mines, copper mines, dangerous backbreaking labor, and they'd be sent there. But Paul doesn't make any differentiation. He says, Masters, treat these as people, because I said so. You're going to be accountable for it. That's something that we should fear. If you're a boss and you have people under you, you're accountable to God for the way you treat them. And you're not going to be able to say, well, company policy. Uh, your job is to treat them appropriately. It's going to be interesting. I don't think people understand this. That we are accountable to God for the way we treat those under us. Husbands, you're going to be held accountable for how you treat your wives, your children. If you have employees, you're going to be held accountable for it. Ladies are no different. Many women ran their households, which meant they ruled over the slaves. How did you treat them? Whether you've got a business of your own or a manager or whatever. In our work, we are accountable to God, whether for the kind of work we do or how we treat those under us. Are we doing what he has asked us to do? See, that's what it means to be a Christian. All these other people Paul was dealing with, these false teachers were saying, well, you just need to follow me, follow my rules, my group. You need to be part of it. And Paul's saying, no, no. You don't need any of that. What you need is to obey Christ. This is what you need to do. Change your actions. Let's face it. It'd be much easier to have this whole code of things that I do and don't do over here, and I can go through and check the list. Yep, didn't go to movies this week. I'm good. Uh, I didn't go to bars. I'm good. Uh, you know, and go down the list, whatever it is. I, I, I lost three pounds, and I look good, and I, I've got short hair, and whatever, whatever you want to put on that list. Yep, that's much easier than, well, I love my, I didn't love my life this week, but it's okay, because I did what I'm supposed to do, right? I didn't submit to my husband. But I've gone to every meeting I'm supposed to go to this week, right? Now, Paul says it's much more difficult. We've got to live this way. In terms of work, we are to work not, and I underlined it and bolded it, not for earthly wealth, but for our heavenly inheritance. Why do you work? Why do you go out every day 
to labor. You can make a buck, put money in your pocket, or are you going to honor God? See how that totally changes work? If we're going to work to honor God while we're there, we're going to work hard, aren't we? We're going to work diligently. We're going to do what needs to be done. We're going to be honest. We're going to be forthright. But if we're just there to get as much earthly wealth as we can, well, we'll do whatever, you know, whatever's the easiest way to go and take cut whatever corners. Comment, question. All right, one more. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Somebody read them. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door to the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love it. He goes from the specific, your family, your household, those that live with you, to the more general, your place of business, and whatever grouping there. And now he says, everybody else. How do we treat them? In our interactions, it's interesting, Paul is not concerned with his well-being, but others in his prayers. He's not interested. He doesn't tell them, pray for me, I'm in prison and being treated horribly, does he? His focus is others. Pray for me that I can witness to other people in this time. Can you imagine? You're in prison and you're not, you're, you don't, you're trying to get an entire region, Colossae. It's not just one church, it's several churches, several large groups of 20, 30 people. You want to get all of them praying for your release, I would think, right? But Paul doesn't, does he? Where is his focus? He's got a captive audience. Paul's focus is everybody else. I've got a captive audience. I don't want to be released. Wow. Can you imagine that mindset? It is so alien to us, isn't it? We live in the land of the free, the home of the brave, and the completely self-absorbed. I mean, we are. The first thing, I mean, I get prayer requests all the time. Pastors in India and stuff that have been taken to prison and stuff. Pray for their release. Does anybody even know if they want to be released? Paul was certainly not interested. How many of them? Uh, Chris, I'm amazed at the, the people he reads. Uh, I find it too boring. <laughs> but he reads these guys who were locked in the gulags of Russia. And you know what? They would have been happy to be released, but they were happy to witness to the people that were there. Can you imagine we read lots of those stories about people in German concentration camps and, and all that. Paul's concern is not his well-being. Can you imagine caring so much about other people that you don't care what happens to yourself? There was a, a 
gentleman when I was in college, he was in India, and he, a friend from America, he was Indian, he was walking everywhere to all these villages in the mountain regions of northern India to plant churches, and he had started many churches, but they needed continual, you know, because they didn't have elders yet, they didn't have anybody who was trained, and so he would walk from village to village, and so a group of missionary friends got together and raised money to buy him a car so that he could do it quicker and faster and not have to walk. Because, I mean, some of, the, some of them would be like two days' walk to get to the village um, because they were so far out. So they got him the money, told him what to do with it and all that, and they checked on him a year later. He didn't buy the car. He'd started another eight churches. He took the money, started more churches with it, He's like, I can always walk, but I can't always have the money to start churches. That's just mind-blowing to us as Westerners. That's what Paul's talking about. Prayer has a role in our interactions with others. Do we even think that way? Do you pray for people that you interact with? And I'm not talking about, like, the guy who's got the office next to you at work. I'm talking about, like, the janitor that you might know his first name at work. I mean, your interactions with everybody. Do you pray for them? Do you think about them in a regular basis in the way I can contribute to their spiritual life? Whether they be the, the, the lowly janitor, the CEO, do you pray up? A lot of times we pray across the people that are at our level because we know them the best. We think of them all the time. And we know that, oh, you know, Nancy's got uh, a husband who's got problems sick and this one's got a grandma who's on the... We, we know all those stories and we remember to pray for those people. And occasionally we think of the, the, the people that are farther up the food chain, things trickle down, and we might remember to pray for them. What about the people below? Do you pray for the people that work for you? those under you, the people that are under them, or farther down the food, do you, do you think to pray for them? What about the, the people you just interact with regularly at the grocery store? Because most of us go to the same grocery store. We see the same people week in, week out that check us out, right? Might know the manager of the store. Do you pray for them? Your interaction with them? How can I be positive in their lives for Christ. Dry cleaner? Well, I don't know anybody goes to a gas station and has an attendant anymore, but that sort of thing. Do we think of that? And then finally, prayer for others focuses our mindset on God's purpose. See, now there's the point of prayer. When we begin praying for those other people, it gets us in that mindset that this is God, that God's got me here for a reason. And we start to change the way we interact with people. Because all those relationships have been restored through Christ. And how we interact with them, how we treat them. Oh, we may treat them very nice. But have we interceded for them? 
Some of them we know well, some of them we don't know so well. All of them need intercession before God, don't they? Because if they're not one of His, that's what they need. And if they are one of His, then just like us, it's always helpful to have others praying for us. Can you read that? Yeah. Spiritual authenticity. This is what it's all about. Paul was dealing with people claiming to be a real Christian meant whatever it was their group believed in. Whether it was the secret knowledge, this checklist of duties if you were a Judaizer, if it was something else, spiritual gifts, the having intercessions with angels and all that, whatever it was. Spiritual authenticity is not promoting ideas which make spirituality the special few who tapped into higher knowledge, engage in mystical experiences, or conformed to a code of rules. Spirituality is nothing so grand, romantic, or impossible. It is submitting to the supremacy of Christ, which will transform our character and revolutionize our relationships. That's what Christ came to do. Transform our relationships. Our relationships with God. Our relationships with ourself. Our relationships with others. Those have all been restored because they were destroyed in Genesis chapter 3. That's what being a good Christian, being spiritually mature, means is knowing what kind of interactions are there. And that's what Paul's been talking about as we've been looking at this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't frustrate your children. Those relationships need to be restored. And it's only by our choice with Christ in us, we now can make that choice. Without him, we couldn't. The Holy Spirit allows us to grow spiritually and allows us to fix those interactions. Slaves working for masters and masters treating slaves. We can do the right thing because we have Christ in us. That's the whole Paul point Paul is making. Comment, question. All right. Three things to take with us. First, we need to foster healthy families. I know most of us in here are older. It's not too late to start. It's never too late. Christ will honor whatever it is we do. So if you need to love your wife, start loving her today. If you need to submit to your husband, start submitting today. If you're a child, which every one of us has parents, they may or may not be alive, but honor them. Go out of your way for them. You might make their day. Whatever it is, we can do it. But if we don't fix it at home, we're not going to be able to do it out in the real world. It's got to start there. Secondly, we need to demonstrate Christ in how we work and lead. You know, most people 
in small business hate Christians. Because they either expect a discount because they're a fellow believer, or, well, you don't really need the money, so I'm going to wait and pay you later, and they're behind and stuff. I have been in business, and the worst people I've ever been in business with were other Christians. It shouldn't be that way. I've been burned by more Christians than I care to count over the years. And it shouldn't be. We need to be honorable. We need to demonstrate Christ. Thirdly, prayer should guide us to interact with others. We need to start praying for even the slightest contact we have with people. That we could make their day. Just being kind to somebody in the TSA line could totally change their view of the rest of the day. Even though they've made you take your shoes off <laughs> and go through the machine five times because you're still beeping. But we can be Christ-like. We should be praying for them. Let's close in prayer. Father, you've told us how to act and how to live in your world. Lord, help us to do it. Oh, it's so not easy. A, a code, a creed, experiences, those would be so much easier to chase after than to live in a manner worthy of you, loving one another. Help us to do that. Help us to make that our way of life, starting today. In your name we pray. Amen.